This is the Transcend Human Podcast, a weekly show where we learn what it means to rise above the human condition. We hope the conversation today is just what you need for the week ahead. Yes, yes, friends, we are back. Transcend Human Podcast, October 23, 2023. Great to be with you. Um, I love that I get to jump on here every once in a while and do this. I know it hasn't been as consistent as it was before. Um, Back before we did the Transcending Eschatology series, I think I was knocking them out almost every week, pretty much on a consistent weekly basis. Then we dove into the eschatology series and it was just a whole different ball of wax. I mean, the the content was more difficult. It was required a lot more reading, a lot more research, which then ended up pushing most episodes to once every two weeks instead of every week. Uh, And I kind of just got out of the habit. So here we are done with the eschatology series. We're back into one-off episodes and I just haven't gotten back on track. Like I just haven't gotten back into that rhythm of knocking out an episode every single week. So I'll work on that. Um, but at the same time, I'm also contemplating uh, a number of different things. I've talked about this a few times. I'm just trying to decide what's next. Do I just keep doing what I've been doing or do I dive into something totally different? But still thinking about that. And we'll talk more about that when it gets closer. But for this week, let's just start with a question. How are you doing? How has your week been? For me, it's been a lot. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm just going to roll right into the minute of transparency so that we can dive in and talk more about it. I'm going to entitle this minute of transparency WTF. So how are you? How are you doing right now, this week? Does the world feel a little out of control, especially with everything going on in the Middle East, the ongoing war in Ukraine? Oh, and then there's the whole fact that our government is so fractured that we can't even decide who should be the Speaker of the House. Those are the headlines yesterday, the day before that, the day before that, a better part of this month. And if you're like me, You just sit there with this dumb look on your face like, WTF, what on earth is going on? Over and over and over again, I find myself asking that question. What on earth is going on? Because it just doesn't make sense. Just when you thought we were moving toward a more peaceful existence in the world, everything seems to break down. But what I've come to realize is this. The world has always been this way. Yes, it ebbs and it flows, but at the end of the day, the world has always been a mess. Those of us who are Gen X or above, and probably living in the United States, like me, grew up in relative peace. Yes, we experienced bad things. We had the space shuttle explosion, we had 9-11, but no world wars and no threat of invasion from another country per se. There were small skirmishes between various groups of people all around the globe, but you'll have that, right? So they are easy to put out of your mind. 
they're happening way over there in countries where people just aren't as advanced as us or as mature as we are. And I think that's the mindset that we basically developed back in the 80s and 90s, right? And there's part of me that believes that this was intentional, that we were actually taught to think this way by our parents, by our government, and for sure by the educational system. We've come to understand that our history was whitewashed here in America. We're taught that we are the best country in the world and that all of the bad parts don't need to be talked about, right? We just leave those out. Or at least we clean them up a bit so they don't sound so bad. Like what we did to the Native Americans, how slavery came to be, and how we actually supported Germany in the early eugenics programs to ensure that the master race was successful. These are all things we downplay because at the end of the day, they're pretty dark and they aren't much different from some of the things that we look down on other countries for today. So as we downplay the past and celebrate how amazing we were in the present, it stands to reason that we assume the future is going to be even better. But I would be interested to know if you all feel the same. So back to today. What I'm realizing is that the number of wars in the world at any given time is pretty consistent. I linked to three Wikipedia articles in the show notes. They basically um, provide a list of all of the wars from 1948 until today. And what we find is that we aren't a more peaceful world. In fact, we're no better off now than we were in the 1950s. In fact, from 2020 to 2023, just three years, I counted 25 confirmed wars. Does that sound like a time of peace? No, of course not. So maybe we've just become accustomed to it. All of these little skirmishes around the world, as, as long as they don't come knocking on our door, then we're good. We're good to go about our daily lives and pretend that everything is wonderful. So then why are the two things going on right now not falling into that category? Why are we all of a sudden drawn in and so impacted by the Russian-Ukraine war and now the Israeli-Palestinian war? Well, my wife believes it all has to do with optics, right? The fact that we have immediate access to the details through news channels like Fox, CNN, nightly news outlets, and for sure, our access to social media, which I find can even travel faster than the news outlets at, at times. Now, you can't vet or confirm the legitimacy of the posts you see on social media, but today we don't seem to be all that worried about that, right? We see things, we hear things, and we're impacted by them no matter whether they're true or not. So I totally agree with my wife that the visibility today is much higher than it was in previous years. But at the same time, I can't help but feel that there's something bigger going on. So let's start with the Russia-Ukraine war. I believe it's because we grew up during the Cold War with Russia, right? We've always looked at them as the enemy, the capable opponent. Uh, if we were to ever go to war with a country that could hold their own, it would be Russia, right? Sure, there's China, but really it's always been Russia. So when Russia invaded Ukraine, we can't help but be flooded with some of those emotions from the past. Not to mention the fact that the U.S. is backing Ukraine, 
which puts us right back into the mix, whether we want to be there or not. It's a war we just don't understand. How Russia could lie about what they were doing. Oh, we're just doing some military exercises. Only to ramp things up into an obvious invasion of another country, hell-bent on taking the country by force. Not to mention the numerous war crimes that they engaged in, thinking that they would just get away with it. I know it's an ongoing war, but at some point, Russia's going to have to answer for those things that they did during the war because the rest of the world saw it and we don't approve. Next, when it comes to the Israeli-Palestinian war, there are a number of things going on with this one, but here are just a couple. First, it was terrifying, right? The Hamas invasion on October 7th was none other than brutal, and it was televised live. We saw Hamas fighters breaking into Israel, killing people indiscriminately. Men, women, children, concert goers, people living in the small villages with no military connection. It was a brutal act, complete with reports of rape, beheadings, kidnappings, and other atrocities that the world agrees are not acceptable. It was a major act of terrorism. Sound familiar? It should, because just over 20 years ago, we experienced terrorism on our own soil. September 11th, right? When terrorists destroyed the safety and the security that we thought we enjoyed here in our country. And though Al-Qaeda is not the same thing as Hamas, it's very easy uh, for us to lump them together as terrorists who want the same thing. Al-Qaeda, Hamas, Hezbollah, the Taliban, the PLF, PLJ, PIJ, ISIS, the list just goes on and on and on. Death to America and death to Israel is what we assume is the resounding cry from most of these groups. So it should be pretty obvious that when these groups attack Israel, we feel some of that same pain in a very real way because their hatred isn't just for Israel, it's for us as well. Next is the ongoing anti-Semitism. Now, if you're like me, this blows your mind. How can one people group be hated so much? It just doesn't make sense. If you look back through time, you see the ongoing hatred, invasions, and the captivity captivity that the Israelites have been through, not to mention the Holocaust, of course, and still it continues today. Every Arab country in the area seems hell-bent on wiping Israel off the face of the planet. One little country surrounded by such hatred. So when we see it start to happen again, we stand up. We speak up because we can't imagine another Holocaust happening on our watch. Next, you have the religious overtones. So this war is not only between two people groups. It's also a religiously charged war, right? Between two religious groups who have never got along, Jewish people and Islamic people. Now, I'll be the first to admit, I know very little about this conflict, right? I know that there are Israelites and there are Palestinians who have absolutely no religious bones in their bodies. And to them, this is nothing more than a war over land and freedom. But I think you can trace this all the way back to Isaac and Ishmael in the Bible. Abraham had Isaac, who had Jacob, who had 12 sons that became the 12 tribes of Israel. Ishmael was also Abraham's son, but he was a son that he had with his servant Hagar. 
Abraham and Sarah didn't trust that God would honor his word and give them a son of their own. So this was their plan to help God make things right. When they realized their mistake, Abraham sent Ishmael and Hagar away to live on their own. Ishmael started a family, and one of his descendants was the prophet Muhammad, the father of the Arab nations and the Islamic religion. So regardless what we believe about the current war, there is also that religious history backing everything up. And finally, we have the religious outsiders, people who aren't even Israeli or Palestinian, but believe that the Israeli people are important to the end of time somehow. Christian nationalists, Zionists, dispensationalists, futurists, whatever you want to call these groups of people, these are people who believe that Israel itself plays a major role in eschatology or in the events of the end times. So these groups watch like hawks, and they even try to manipulate things in the Middle East in order to ensure that Israel keeps moving in the right direction. How selfish is that, right? But again, just one more reason why this conflict has become so visible and seems to have such a big impact on us here in the West. Okay, that was a lot. But again, that's what's been on my mind recently, and I'm assuming that many of you are in a similar spot. So I wanted to at least address it before we dive into today's topic, into today's topic, which is transcending perfectionism. Chapter one, the sin virus. Chapter two, pesky temptations. And chapter three, avoiding perfectionism. Chapter one, the sin virus. For those of you who have been around for a while, uh, you know that transcend human uh, has some common themes, some mantras, and, and some ways of describing the world around us. We talk a lot about the human condition and how we can transcend it or rise above it rather than giving into it. And we talk a lot about this thing called the sin virus and the role that it plays in our lives. And for some reason, it just felt right to bring that up again today. Maybe because the wars we just talked about are based on it, right? The sin virus is the root of it all. Without the sin virus, there would be no war. With, with it, war is just one of the many negative symptoms of the disease. As we've discussed, the sin virus started in heaven. Call it ground zero, patient zero, whatever you want to call it. But Lucifer, the exalted angel of music in heaven, the leader of the heavenly choir, um, is where it all started. One day, he had a thought. Why is God in charge? <laughs> and why shouldn't it be me? And that little seed of doubt, anger, and jealousy just kept getting stronger and stronger. Lucifer started to water it. He gave it some sunshine. He allowed it to grow into a raging weed that eventually took over his soul. It led him to infect a third of the angels in heaven, convincing them that God was a fraud, right? And that they would never be totally free until they overthrew him and took control of heaven for themselves. And as we know, the rest is history. Lucifer and his angels fought to take control, but they lost and they were forced out of heaven. So God banished them to our little planet and eventually convinced us, Lucifer that is, eventually convinced us to rebel against God as well. The sin virus that started in heaven came to this planet 
and it is an invasive virus infecting every single atom on the planet. It has impacted the solar system, our planet, the natural world, the animals, and yes, the human race. The sin virus is here to stay. That is, until God sent his son to remedy the problem. So God sent Jesus to earth. He lived a perfect life by not giving in to the sin virus. And then he was murdered by his own people. I call it murder, but since Jesus was half God, he could have wiped out his enemies. But instead, he chose to give himself as a sacrifice. So it was more of a sacrifice than it was murder. Jesus allowed it to happen. He gave himself up in that way because in doing so, he created the antidote to the sin virus, an antidote that will forever be available to us as long as we choose to take it. Kind of like the COVID vaccine, right? Wait, too soon? No, actually, it's exactly like that. Assuming that the vaccine works, of course, because I don't know that we fully know if it did or not. But think about it in those terms. The vaccine was created, and like I said, assuming that it does work, you still had people refusing to take it. That's exactly the way it is for each of us when it comes to the antidote to the sin virus. We have the freedom of choice. We can take, we can take it or we can leave it. Some take it blindly, others require some research, still others do some research and decide to refuse it, and then there are those who refuse it blindly. But it exists, right? The antidote is there for each of us if we want it. So why are we talking about the sin virus? Uh, This is an episode on perfectionism, right? Well, my hope was... (laughs) to review this information because it's really foundational, right? This belief or this understanding that we live in a fallen world, that the human condition is what it is because of the sin virus, and that the problems we face in life, the issues that we have, the natural disasters, the wars, the hatred, the anger, and even issues with our mental health are all a direct result of the sin virus. Now, unfortunately, this has created a very polarizing debate. Uh, We refer to it as the original sin debate, or basically the debate as to whether we are born good or evil. Are babies inherently good, or are they born sinful? And I really never realized how important this was to people until I had a conversation with my wife about it. Uh, Tammy definitely puts her foot down on the side of good, that we're all born good, and that there is good in every person. I think I grew up with a much more pessimistic view of things, to tell you the truth. Uh, Assuming that the sin virus was basically passed down from generation to generation, and that it was more of a constant thing, impacting everything, including newborn babies. Again, this is pretty important to people, as I found out. But the more I think about it, the more I question why. Why is it so important to some of us? I mean... Just because I believe that babies are born with the sin virus doesn't mean I think they are evil any more than I believe an adult is evil just because they have the sin virus. To me, it's not about the sin virus. It's a human condition thing. And the sin virus, even though it's there all along, requires a person to understand it first before it can really take hold. 
similar to Lucifer being perfect until he found the virus and started giving into it. A baby doesn't even understand what it is. But at some point, a child comes to that understanding, right? They start to recognize that there is right and there is wrong. And that's when the sin virus really kicks in. When we fully understand that there is a battle going on behind the scenes between good and evil. And we make calculated choices one way or the other. Chapter 2, Pesky Temptations. So this whole idea of understanding right from wrong and having to make decisions one way or the other is really where temptation comes into play. Now, people start getting a little weirded out when you start talking about temptation, right? Some people want to take the spiritual aspect out of it 100% and say, temptation is merely the thought about doing something you've been told not to do. Or maybe it's thinking about doing something that society believes is wrong. Or maybe it's thinking about doing something that could harm another person in some way. And then there are those who are okay with the idea that it's a spiritual thing, right? Maybe you believe that all temptation are spiritual in some way, shape, or form. Something in the universe that's trying to derail you. Uh, maybe you view it as the whole yin versus yang thing, right? The, the understanding that there is a light and a dark side of each of us. And that there is always this fight to keep the darkness at bay. And finally, there are those who are 100% comfortable with the full spiritual implication. So from Christians to you name it, right? Uh, it doesn't matter what your religious background is. But for Christians, obviously, this is based on the Bible, this belief that there's a God and there's a Satan, there's good and there's evil, uh, that God sent Jesus to rescue us. Uh, and this belief that Satan tempts people to sin in order to get back at God, right? We call this spiritual warfare in Christianity. And it can definitely be taken to the extreme, right? People seeing every single decision as spiritual or being part of spiritual warfare, including what you wear in the morning or what you choose to have for breakfast. That's obviously a little too far. Uh, but in moderation, this view holds that Satan or his demons are active in our daily lives, basically pushing us to make bad decisions, pushing us to give in to the sin virus because they know that it'll keep us away from God or it'll take us away from him altogether. So how do we deal with or overcome temptations? Well, let's look at it from two different perspectives. First, we'll take the Christian point of view. So how does the Bible suggest that we handle temptation? An article on Christianity.com provides 26 verses about temptation. And in these 26 verses, here are some insights that we find. First, we need to be watchful. Next, we need to have a prayer life. Next, God will not allow us to be tempted more than we can handle. God always provides a way out. Then it talks about this thing called the full armor of God, and each piece of armor represents a spiritual discipline. So here's the list. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God. Now, if these are supposed to help us stand up against temptation, we should probably take, take each of them seriously in our own lives. So we should probably ask ourselves things like, do we understand the truth? Are we trying to do the right thing in every given situation? 
Are we promoting peace? Do we have faith that God is with us in the fight? Have we been saved? Like, have we truly accepted the antidote to the sin virus? And is the Bible something that we use on a regular basis to provide strength in our lives? Okay, two final thoughts from this article. First, it mentions the fact that we should find joy in temptation. Strange, right? And the reasoning is because it's the only thing that leads to perseverance and completeness, according to the Bible. Never really thought of it that way. But the only way that you learn to persevere and and become a well-rounded or a complete person is by going through temptations and probably difficult times as well. And then the final thing it said was, submit to God and the devil will run from you. Good, good idea. <laughs> I mean, the closer that you are to God, the, the harder it will be for the devil to, to gain inroads into your life. So he'll leave and go somewhere else. Next, let's take a psychological approach to temptation. So let's just leave religion behind altogether and leave spirituality out of it. How can a person resist temptations? Well, there are many theories when it comes to this. Most are based on like therapeutic treatment modalities, right? So if you go see a therapist, they're going to tell you what to do based on their therapeutic background or, or the, the treatment modality that they uh, believe in the most. So that could be behavioral therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, psychodynamic reality therapy, solution focused therapy, whatever, whatever genre of therapy or clinical practice that they put their practice in or what they believe in, that's the way they're going to respond. But let's just keep it way more general than that. So I found an article about temptation on goodtherapy.com. So let's just walk through this whole thing together. First, it defines temptation as a strong desire or drive to do something. Notice I didn't say that it was something Satan was whispering in your ear, though the article does acknowledge that there is a religious understanding of temptation, which it defines more like this, a lure toward sinful or risky behavior. And this lure is often attributed to the devil or a force of evil. But from a strictly psychological standpoint, temptation is just a strong drive to do something. So temptation is often associated with cravings or addictions. Everything from a strong addiction to something like drugs or alcohol or simple addictions, right? Simple temptations like wanting a piece of cake when you're on a diet. Now, here are some important aspects of temptation based on research. The article says that some people are more susceptible to temptation than others. Interesting, right? Temptation appears to be wrapped up in the brain's reward system, the release of dopamine. So for some, dopamine is released when tempted, and for others, less or no dopamine is released when they are tempted. Now, this could be genetic, uh, but it could also be environmental. Researchers did some studies using rats, and they found that rats who were placed under high stress when they were young appeared to have a harder time with temptation when they were grown. The, um, they also found that the amount of time spent trying to avoid temptation can actually make it harder to avoid it. Uh, 
So numerous attempts to avoid a temptation actually depletes our mental energy, which in turn makes it harder to avoid the temptation. Basically, it's like a vicious cycle. Again, interesting stuff, but let's get to some tools, right? The way that we can resist temptation, according to this article, is to practice self-awareness and mindfulness. Meditation, which increases mindfulness. Establishing a healthy habit and a healthy routine. And adopting an abundance mindset. Okay, so that's the info that I got from that article, but I also wanted to add a few more for good measure. So when I was a clinician, I used to use these ones all the time. First is the practice of finishing the story. So basically a temptation is us focusing like a laser on one thing, the thing that we want to do. For example, a laser focus on the next drink. If you're an alcoholic, it's basically all you can see. It's all you can think about, but finishing the story goes like this. I take the next drink, which leads to three more drinks, which leads me to being incapacitated when my kids get home, which leads me to passing out sometimes and being unable to care for my kids, which could potentially lead me to having my kids taken away. See the power behind that? Thinking through the entire story and admitting that it typically goes that way or could very easily wind up that way versus just thinking about the next drink. The next thing is called the miracle question. So this is typically used in solution-focused therapy um, in order to get a client to picture their life without the presenting problem. And it goes something like this. Imagine that you went to sleep one night and a miracle happened. When you woke up, the problem you were struggling with is suddenly absent from your life. What does your life look like without this problem. Now, if we were to apply that to temptation, maybe we would rephrase it like this. Imagine that a miracle occurs and you no longer feel tempted to engage in this negative behavior. What would your life look like and how would your life be better? So similar to the previous exercise, right? Very powerful because it forces you to see a clearer future and in a roundabout way, you actually identify the negative things that you're experiencing right now because of the behavior. Chapter three, avoiding perfectionism. So those of you that joined specifically to hear me talk about perfection are a little bit miffed right now (laughs) because we're two thirds of the way through the episode and I haven't even really mentioned it. So I apologize for that. But at the same time, we just walked through two very important elements to the perfectionism dilemma, the why and the how. First, let's talk about the why. Why do some of us experience perfectionism? Well, in my estimation, it's because we all experience the human condition and we're all infected with the sin virus. And together, these two things become a Petri dish in which all sorts of mental health issues can grow and mature. Next up is the how. You guessed it, temptation. Now, you can look at temptation from the religious or spiritual point of view and assume that the devil has something to do with it or the devil is always behind it. Or you can simply take a scientific approach 
and view temptations as strong desires or cravings that we experience, leading us toward behavior that may not be the best for us. But it really doesn't matter at the end of the day because you're going to experience the temptation either way. However you look at it, you're still experiencing the same thing. Now, you notice that I just threw in the term mental health. Important, because perfectionism doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's just one of the many cognitive and behavioral responses we form in response to the human condition. It may not be as popular as things like depression or anger or anxiety or addiction, but it's still a thing, a very real thing that many of us struggle with. So let's start with the official definition from dictionary.com. Definition one, any of various doctrines holding that religious, moral, social, or political perfection is attainable. Number two, a personal standard, attitude, or philosophy that demands perfection and rejects anything less. Interesting, right? Interesting to me that the first definition is actually related to religious or moral beliefs. But at the end of the day, uh, we're going to talk about perfectionism in the more general terms, right? So the general definition that you require things to be perfect at the expense of everything else. And like the mental health disorders we mentioned above, it comes on a spectrum, right? We know that depression isn't a one-size-fits-all thing. You have everything from feeling down or feeling blue to not being able to get out of bed and feeling suicidal, right? There's a massive spectrum in there of depressive symptoms. Similarly, perfectionism should be seen on a spectrum as well. But let's list a few traits first. So according to verywellmind.com, here are 10 signs that you might be a perfectionist. First, all or nothing thinking, being highly critical, feeling pushed by fear, having unrealistic standards, focusing only on results, feeling depressed by unmet goals, a fear of failure, procrastination, defensiveness, and low self-esteem. And where does it come from? Well, the article goes on to suggest the following. Perfectionism could potentially come out of a fear of judgment from others, maybe growing up with parents who set very unrealistic expectations. Um, I would also add here having parents who are very legalistic from a Christian or religious standpoint. Um, having a mental health disorder associated with perfectionistic thinking. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, poor self-esteem, feelings of inadequacy, a need for control or feeling out of control, and trying our self-worth scratch that, tying our self-worth to achievements or things that we do. So based on all of that, the traits of perfectionism and the causes of perfectionism, let's now look at some levels of perfectionism on the spectrum. Now, we're not going to talk about every possible scenario, not all of them, but just a few that stand out. So number one, Wanting things to go our way or be done how we would do it. Sound familiar? <laughs> it should, because this may be common to each and every one of us, right? 
Things like loading the dishwasher, then watching the way another person does it and wondering what's wrong with them. Or the way you place the roll of toilet paper on the holder, right? You might have a very strong feeling about that. So many things. And we find some level of peace and comfort when people do things the way that we do them. So that was wanting things to go our way. Next is attempting to have things go our way or be done how we would do it. So this is similar to the list above, except now instead of thinking about it, we actually try to make it happen. Maybe we ask people questions or try to convince people to do things the way that we do them. Maybe we follow people around and redo the things that they've already done because it works better for us. Maybe we spend a lot of time fixing things that don't line up with our preferred way. Maybe we start having arguments leading to social or relational problems with those we care about. Uh, I had one guy one time chastise me in a public bathroom because I used two pieces of toilet, not toilet paper. (laughs) I used two pieces of paper towel instead of one. He even showed me how you could open up the one and use each side carefully in order to have to use another one. Now, bless his heart, he was only trying to save the environment, but he was attempting to have things go his way. And finally is forcing things to go our way or to be done how we would do it. So the three are wanting things to go our way, attempting to have things go our way, and forcing things to go our way. Enforcing, this is obviously the highest level of perfectionism, right? When we have to have something a certain way or we basically lose it. Or we demand that others do things our way and wind up alienating ourselves because people don't want to be around us. At this level, you're typically diagnosed with some sort of anxiety disorder, right? There's panic disorder, agoraphobia, specific phobias, social phobia, obsessive compulsive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder. Now I left off PTSD and acute stress disorder because these are typically associated with the experiencing of a traumatic event. But basically at this level, the issue is so big that it is having a negative impact on your life. Now the two anxiety disorders most associated with perfectionism would be generalized anxiety disorder and OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. Generalized anxiety disorder is just a persistent anxious feeling that is very difficult to control. It causes significant distress in your life, and it can be related to a variety of things, including the irrational concern that things aren't perfect. Sound familiar? Next, we have obsessive compulsive disorder, which includes either obsessions or compulsions. Obsessions are intrusive thoughts that cause distress. And compulsions are repetitive behaviors that are required in order to reduce or prevent that distress. Now for me, generalized anxiety disorder is a loosely associated thing, but obsessive compulsive disorder is a much closer match, right? When I think of needing things to be perfect, I picture a person arranging cans in a cupboard so that all of the labels are facing one direction and maybe even moving them around so that the color spectrum is created versus random colors in the line. Now, Tammy and I recently watched a documentary on Netflix called Beckham, right? It was the, it's the documentary of David Beckham and his story. 
And toward the end of the series, it became clear to me that the person interviewing him for the documentary found his level of perfectionism or possibly OCD fascinating because he started commenting on it. He commented a few times. Then in one of the later segments, he actually had David show him things in his house that illustrated his need for order and for perfectionism. Now, the interesting thing is that David never even explained it as being a problem. In fact, he just described it as a part of him, a desire to have things a very specific way, and that he was willing to go out of his way and spend countless hours to ensure that that's the way things were. Everything from the cabinets in the kitchen to the closet in his room, the way his clothes were lined up, the way that his clothes and drawers were placed perfectly and in color, um, color order and things like that. Now, friends, I'm not going to diagnose a person that I don't even know, but if these behaviors were causing friction between David and his wife or David and his family, uh, or if they were keeping him from getting to other more important responsibilities he had in his life, then that's classic OCD. But I digress. I'll end with a few conclusions about perfectionism. First, it's not the end of the world even if it gets to the level of generalized anxiety disorder or OCD. We're simply trying to control our environment, possibly because we feel out of control. And to make matters worse, the human condition is very good at letting us know that we're not in control. Perfectionism on some level makes us who we are, and it can help us succeed on some level. If David Beckham is a perfectionist, it definitely took him places, right? I can see that in my own life. For me, I have no doubt that on a certain level, my perfectionism has allowed me to learn new things and has helped me in my job. Um, I do quality assurance on web projects. The QA process is a very tedious, detail-oriented part of the process that requires a high level of pickiness and attention to detail, which I seem to have. So that said, it can be a good thing, but at the same time, it can also creep up on you in your life, right? If you let it, your desire for things to be a certain way can go from wanting to attempting to forcing. And before you know it, you've developed a very bad habit, one that alienates you from others and can begin to control your life. So what we need is balance, moderation, right? For those of us who lean toward perfectionism, find a way to maintain that balance. View it as a skill on the one hand, something that can help you be successful, but also be vigilant to make sure that it doesn't become your entire world because nothing will be perfect this side of heaven. Let's land the plane. Friends, I hope you've had a great week despite everything going on in the world. I hope you found joy in your routines, in the people around you, and in the small things that make up your everyday life. Thank you, as always, for joining me today and for being with me on the journey. Until next time, friends, keep transcending human. 